didn't get through all my notes uh, last week. So I wanted to try and finish this out for us tonight. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and Father, you are a great and almighty being, and you have revealed yourself as one God in three persons. These things are difficult for us to understand. Please, Lord, help us to come with reverence and humility and sit under your word and learn and be instructed from your scriptures. Give us a better understanding of you, Lord, so that we might know you better, that we might love you and serve you. We ask, Lord, this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the final verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now, <clears throat> we are uh, looking at a book that we're going to be studying in more detail and slowly in uh, Sunday school and want to um, encourage all of you who are in high school to come and join us uh, next week. If you still need a book, you can see me. It's entitled Knowing the Trinity, Practical Thoughts for Daily Life uh, by Ryan, Dr. Ryan McGraw, who is a professor now at Greenville Seminary in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. He used to be the pastor of Sunnyvale OPC out in California prior to that. <clears throat> so um, this is a very uh, digestible book. It's kind of like um, John Owen, but readable. <laughs> And uh, so encourage you to, to maybe think about it if, if it, your appetite is whetted uh, to uh, think about getting a copy there. Um, a little bit review and then want to go on. Dr. McGraw notes that the Trinity is like a canvas on which uh, a painter paints, meaning this, that the New Testament never really tried to do a defense or an apologetic of the Trinity per se. Um, you never really find the New Testament trying to prove the Trinity. But the Trinity is always there, just like a canvas is always there upon which the painting rests. If, if there's no canvas, then there can be no portrait. And, and so the canvas is absolutely necessary for there to be a picture. And so Ryan McGraw makes the case that the Trinity is like that canvas in that it we can't understand the gospel without the Trinity. And, um, and the Trinity is, is the backdrop by which we understand our salvation. Now, as our shorter catechism teaches, and we may uh, look at our catechism uh, tonight, um, the catechism teaches that God is one in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is one. That was the, one of the early lessons that God gave to the children of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. There, you shall have no other gods. All other gods are but only idols. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, uh, if you look at uh, that, also makes the same argument. <clears throat> he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then he goes on and said that men, however, did not receive that revelation of God and turned to idols. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory 
of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man or of birds or four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So God gives them over for that sin to other sins. And then they begin to practice uh, this idolatry and depravity there. God uh, is alone, the God of the heavens and the earth. There is no other God. But God reveals himself to us, especially in the New Testament. I say especially because he is there in his trinity in the Old Testament. But he comes forth more clearly in his three persons in the New Testament. I think I've given you the example B.B. Warfield says it's like a, a room that um, is full of furniture, but the lights are off in the room, and it's, you, you maybe see a little bit of the room. Uh, that is kind of what it's like going through the old covenant, but then you can click the light on, and that which always was there is seen now more clearly. So it is with the being and the persons of God. Now, let's talk a little bit here, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Father. The Father is the first person of the Trinity. The Father represents, if you will, the, the majesty of God. Um, the Son, of course, is the eternal Son of God who has clothed himself with our humanity, he being both God and man. And the Spirit of God is the one who applies uh, the work of the Lord to us. So I remember many years ago, Joe Moorcraft, remember teaching on the subject of the Trinity, and he explained it this way, which I found very helpful and, and simple. I think even you young children can remember this. And that is that the Father planned your salvation. Now it's a little you know more complex than this, but this is a simple way of understanding. The Father plans your salvation. He chose you. Uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at um, Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 4, Ephesians 1, just as we are told, he chose us in him, that is, the Father chose you in Jesus Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption. So, a lot of people get election and predestination a little bit confused. Election is where God chooses you out of his mere grace to be one of his people in Jesus Christ. Predestination, predestination is the outworking of God's eternal decrees. It's where God brings everything that happens to pass out of, from which God's eternal decrees um, are, are worked out. And sometimes people confuse the two, but the Father, in a sense, is in charge of both. The Father elects us to be in Christ, and he predestines all of history. He predestined, we are told in verse 5, the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed us in the beloved. So the Father plans our salvation. The Son accomplishes your salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who accomplishes. Now, as I said last week, the Son said it is finished. And so Jesus is 
not just as the Arminians teach, giving man out of his own free will an opportunity to be saved. You need to realize Christ is not just opening the door saying, do you want to go in or not? He, his, his work on the cross saves you. He is, as I've used the illustration before, he's like the bridegroom who comes and picks up the bride and carries her across the door threshold. So that the death of our Savior uh, does, with finality, accomplish that which the Father has elected you. So the Father elects you for salvation. The Son's death on the cross is, is the actual purchase price for your salvation. It is, it is finished at that moment. However, it has not been applied. As I said this morning, I, I came to Christ in 1988. So in what sense, you know, was I say, you know, if Christ accomplished my salvation 2,000 years ago, but I'm still an unbeliever, how do you explain that? Well, it's because the Spirit had yet to apply that work to me. And the same with some of you, the Spirit applied it at infancy. Others of you you can remember when the Spirit applied salvation to your life. The Spirit is the one who regenerates you. He effectually calls you to Christ. He gives you the gift of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, the Ephesians uh, chapter 2 says, you know, that no man is, we're not to boast. It's all of God, even our faith. You have been saved by grace and saved through faith and not of yourselves, he says. It's the gift of God. Or to specify, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. So the Father plans the salvation. The Son accomplishes the salvation. And the Spirit applies the salvation. Now that's a very simple way to understand it. But, now let me muddy the waters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In any act, however, of redemption, all three persons are involved. What I just told you was where the one person of the Trinity takes the lead. But when one person may take the lead in that aspect of your redemption, you should not think that the other two have nothing to do with that aspect of your salvation. So, for example, as the Father plans your salvation, he does so in Christ and in a sense with Christ. In fact, even before you were chosen in Christ, you could say that the Father and the Son agreed to the plan of salvation, that the Son would come and save. Um, and, and so the Holy Spirit also with the Father and the Son so God, in all three of his persons, are always together working. So that, for example, in the, in the incarnation, we think of the incarnation, and we think primarily of the Son, right? Taking to himself human flesh. Kind of in that sense, taking the lead. But the Bible also says that it was the Spirit who conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And that it was the Father, we are told in, in the Gospels, who sent the Spirit. So... All three persons should be understood as taking a part in whether it's the incarnation, whether it's the cross, whether it's the resurrection. You see it in the resurrection. Sometimes the Bible says that the Father raised the Son from the dead. Sometimes Jesus said 
The, the Son of Man lays down his life and he takes it back up. So here's an example where the scriptures, um, and, and then they were also told that the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, and the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead now worketh in you. So that the Bible, a lot of times, will give you different perspectives of the same redemptive act, showing you that even if one takes the lead, all three are always in, involved. Now last week we saw that the Father is fully God, the Son's fully God, then the Holy Spirit is fully God. Remember, the, the Spirit is not a force, as the Jehovah's Witnesses will teach. When they come to your door, they will try to tell you that the Spirit is a force. They also will deny the full deity of, of the Son. They will say that the Son was created by the Father. We do not teach that. We teach that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now that leads us to the theological question, what does it mean to be eternally begotten? That's a difficult concept. John Frame puts it this way, the Son is eternally begotten to distinguish him from the Father. And, he, and it's hard to go much further. But that's not what the Jehovah's Witnesses mean when, when when the scriptures speak of Christ as being begotten of the Father, they believe that Jesus was a, a creature. He was the first act of creation. Um, and then the Spirit is a power, but not a person. But we saw the New Testament last week that the, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, the Holy Spirit can be quenched, um, that Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, you have not lied unto men, but unto God. He said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And, that, and he said, you have not lied to men, but to God, saying if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. Uh, all three are at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is there, the Son of God is being baptized. The Father, uh, as, oh, I should say that the Son, while being baptized, is praying to the Father. At his baptism, the Father is giving his benediction on the baptism. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descending as a dove. And as we saw last week, we should not think of this as three slices of one pie. But the whole Godhead is in each person. And these things are, are a mystery to be sure. Ryan McGraw says that the Trinity is a thread. If we pull on that thread, the entire New Testament unravels. It's like learning a language, he said, in order to learn the Bible. We must learn of the Trinity if we are understand what the apostles are talking about. Now, I wanna, he goes on, he says... We need to know each uh, person of the Trinity. He, um, he has what he calls here practical thoughts for daily life. And really what a lot of this uh, book is about is um, how, it's not just how do I know in an erudite way about these theological concepts, but how do I personally as a Christian commune as I go about my day with God in his three persons? So first of all, 
he uh, speaks of the Father. And he says that the Father saves, but the Father saves through Jesus Christ. And as the Father comes to us through the Son, we, in our communion with God, come to the Father through Christ. Not only is the Father God Almighty, but he is also called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even before he becomes our Father in Christ, says McGraw. He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, even before he becomes our Father in adoption in Jesus Christ. Now the Father is the origin or the beginning of all blessings. We are incorporated into heaven by the Father's decree through the Son, whereby we have eternal life. The Bible says that to know Jesus Christ is to have eternal life, and that is what it means to know the Father as well. We come to know the Father through knowing the Son. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father to you. And so anytime you're reading in your Bible and, for example, boys and girls, you see Jesus say something, that's exactly what the Father would have said about the same situation. Or when we see Jesus reacting in a particular way, maybe when the, the babies are being hindered from coming unto him, and we see Jesus provoked to anger, that's the same response that the Father has. Um, he is the exact representation. Jesus Christ is unique because he, he perfectly represents God the Father to us. And he also perfectly represents us to the Father because he is holy and righteous. And therefore, he's the perfect and only mediator uh, between God and man. We are chosen, as I said earlier, we are elected by the Father in Christ. And uh, through the work of sanctification and glorification, we will come to resemble Jesus Christ ourselves. We will be holy like Jesus Christ is holy. And there will be a day in glory where you will not be able to sin. You, you will not be able to sin even as Christ uh, cannot sin. Everyone in Jesus Christ is adopted. And we have all the rights and the privileges of being the children of the Father. Uh, by nature, we are children of darkness. We're children of sin and wrath and Satan. But through the work of the Father, through Jesus Christ, by the work of the Father, through Christ, applied by the Spirit, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are transferred from being united with Satan to the family of God. Our citizenship is transferred, and we have a new kingdom. And that kingdom is holy, and we will be blameless in that kingdom at the end. Also, we need to recognize that the Father shows you grace through the Son. The Father is gracious to sinners uh, through Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, the sending of the Son that we come to know the grace and the love of our Heavenly Father. God so loved the world, or you could say the Father so loved the world, that he, what? He gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe on him, on the Son, should have everlasting life. So 
McGraw emphasizes knowing the Father. Then he goes on and he speaks from Ephesians chapter 1 also of knowing the Son. Look at Ephesians 1 again. Notice there in verses 3 through 6, it speaks chiefly of the Father in uh, those verses. And then when you get to verse 7 through 12, the focus shifts to the Son. And then later in this same chapter, Paul then focuses to the Spirit. So uh, Paul himself is here writing in a very uh, Trinitarian manner, starting with the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Now, McGraw argues that the New Testament, while Trinitarian in nature, is centered on Jesus Christ, though. Because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And nobody comes, the Bible says, to the Father except through Christ. Uh, Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And even the role of the Holy Spirit, now you have to realize the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the shy person of the Trinity. I've heard Sinclair Ferguson speak of this, and Ferguson has a book, uh, if you want to read sometime, on the Holy Spirit. And uh, a lot of emphasis in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s, particularly in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, on the, on the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But realize that the, even the role of the Spirit is to do what? It's to exalt the Son. The Spirit is not to bring glory unto himself. You know, they, they, some churches will have the dove, you know, on the wall coming down. The Spirit himself wants to direct the attention to Christ, to the Son, so that um, the New Testament is Trinitarian, McGraw argues, but, but it, it, it comes to the crown jewel is, is the person of Christ. The Spirit is seeking to glorify Christ. The Bible says that the Father blesses the Son, and so the Son is to have a preeminence in our affections. Um, McGraw notes here in Ephesians 1 that, that, that Jesus Christ is mentioned 15 times there in the opening chapter. Now, of course, the greatest expression of God's grace towards us is Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, Jesus Christ, in McGraw here is quoting from John Owen. He says, Christ died for all men without distinction, but not for all men without exception. Christ died for all men without without distinction, but not for all men without exception. That is, Christ saves his people. And he does so uh, by dying for his elect. And he, he, his death saves the elect. So the cross becomes the very core of the message that we preach as a church. Paul said, I preach Christ and him crucified. Paul says that the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. The cross is foolishness to the world that's blind. It thinks nothing of the preaching of Jesus Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't give it any recognition. It doesn't think it's any great significance. Liberals think it's just a mere example to be imitated somehow by us in a lesser degree. But the Bible says it is the very wisdom of God in, in Corinthians. Even the cross baffled angels, McGraw argues. They long to look into the mystery here of what God was doing through his son. Now, why the cross? Well, because as our confession teaches, God does not clear the guilty. 
I remember I was a first year seminary student in R.C. Sproul's systematic theology class, and I was nervous sitting on the front row because Sproul had the awful habit of calling on you. He um, liked to use that method in his, he just wasn't a lecture guy, but he tended to dialogue. And, you know, Sproul kind of had that growl about him, and he goes, why? And so he's up there, why does God not clear the guilty, Boyd? <laughs> and my throat went, <laughs> and I said, he wouldn't be just. I mean, I sounded like Mickey Mouse down in Orlando there. Right? He wouldn't be. And it just kind of squeaked out, he wouldn't be just. And he guys kind of looked at me, he wouldn't be just. <laughs> and I thought, oh, good, I got it right. <laughs> McGraw notes here that the same thing, that God, as our confession says, does not clear the guilty, that Christ must pay the, the awful penalty for, for our sins. If God were to simply clear the guilty, he would become unjust himself, and that, of course, God cannot do. So Jesus Christ uniquely at the cross was representing God, and he's also uniquely representing man at the cross. He's representing man in his, in his perfect life and sinlessness and his humanity, but he is also representing God on that cross. He is representing the love of the Father for you. God is represented in that cross as well as man. He represents the offended God. And he represents, McGraw says, offending sinners. He takes their guilt, our guilt. Now Christ's chief aim is, or excuse me, the Father's chief aim is to glorify Christ. Excuse me, let me rephrase it. McGraw, McGraw says, our chief aim is to glorify Christ. As we listen to preaching, um, we are to behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Christ is to be preached because Christ can save to the uttermost. This is what it means to be a part of the new creation. God's will, says McGraw, which is hidden in his secret counsel of election, is revealed in Jesus Christ, though. And, will, and, and now is leading us to the consummation, to glory. So that our salvation is not an end in and of itself. Our salvation is to lead us to the praise and the glory of God. And so we are to look to the new heavens and new earth. So you see that the sun is emphasized there in the middle portion of Ephesians 1. And then also you see the Spirit also uh, at the end it is mentioned, if you see in verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, that is in Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Father, what does he do? He chooses you, he elects you in verses 3 through 6. The Son accomplishes that salvation there in 7 through uh, 12. And then verses 13 and 14, the sealing of the Spirit, the applying 
through the preaching of the word of God. People are born again by the Spirit's power. They are adopted. They are sealed by the Spirit. We cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit is also the one who anoints Jesus Christ. Um, McGraw argues that the Spirit is with Jesus Christ in three stages. First, we see it at his birth, and then at his baptism, and then also in his ascension. Uh, Christ's whole life was in communion with God, the Father through the Spirit. The Son is baptized, the Spirit comes down. The Spirit, McGraw says, means to finish the Father's work. So the Spirit we see, for example, drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. We see that the miracles are come about through Christ by the Spirit, but yet also by the command of the Father. And that the preaching and the content of Jesus comes from the Father. The, 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 the Son speaks that which the Father gives him, but it is filled with the Spirit and in the Spirit's power. So that Jesus Christ ministered by word and spirit. Now, even more so now, because while the spirit rested, as I've argued in the past, on Christ as the Messiah in his earthly ministry, it is once Christ ascends to the Father at his right hand that um, upon that coronation of Christ, the spirit then is poured out so that Christ in his exalted ministry gives of his spirit so that many might believe. Jesus Christ takes us um, by his blood to the Father, excuse me, through his blood to the Father by the Spirit. So we see that the entire act of redemption is an entire work of the whole Trinity. McGraw goes on and he says, um, one of the many problems with the Mass, for example, that our Roman Catholic friends observe, um, is that it is, it is re-sacrificing Christ again and again. In a sense, it, what it's doing, you have to understand that when the priest is up there, he's not doing the same thing that a Protestant minister is doing. Okay, If you've ever watched the Catholic channel and you, you uh, hear the ringing of the bell and the lifting up the cup... And oftentimes, even the priest may even turn his back to the congregation. Because what is he doing? He's offering up Christ to the Father. Um, what that, the problem, one of the problems with that is that it, is, it ends up denying the final sacrifice of Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. It was the Spirit who led Jesus Christ to go to the cross as a lamb to its own death. And so McGraw says, we have to be led by the Spirit. We have to die to self. We have to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ and be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. All by the power of the Spirit working within us. Now McGraw asked the question, who crucified Christ? And his answer is all the above, Jews and Gentiles by lawless hands. But they did this, we have to understand, by the counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was part of the plan of God 
to use the evil devices of men in order to secure that salvation and for the Spirit then to apply it to us. Let me say one thing um, kind of in closing here, and, and, and that is the Trinity and the resurrection of Christ. McGraw gives an illustration of uh, the Son, and he says that, um, that in, in some ways the Son is, is like the, the, the S-U-N, the, thing, the big yellow thing in the sky. Um, he says the Son um, is often the backdrop to our day, isn't it? Um, we don't think about the Son. He, he had an interesting story that there was a guy in his church who actually uh, worked at one of the local universities who did study the sun, actually. But most of us really just, we live in the context of the sun. Um, we don't tend to think on it all that much. The Trinity is like the backdrop of our, our redemption. But what he said in his book, what he's trying to argue is that we become more self-conscious in our Trinitarian devotion uh, to God. And he, he goes on to the resurrection. He says, Christ lives to the Father by the power of the Spirit. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit who lives in us enables us to live in personal holiness in this life and also leads to the resurrection in the next life. And then he goes over to uh, Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn in your Bible there, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. You see what Paul says here, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, speaking to believers here, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus, the, raised Jesus from the dead, so notice the connection between holiness of living and the resurrection of Christ. He says, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that we live to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We live out of a, a holiness that comes from a new life in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is also called the Spirit of Holiness in the life of the believer. We have been crucified with Jesus Christ, and we have been raised with Jesus Christ. We are in union with Christ through faith in him. And so the life that we live, we no longer, Paul says, live in the flesh. That is, we no longer live according to the impulses of sin. That nature has uh, been not eradicated, but it definitely has been dealt a mortal blow. And so we are able now to yield to God and not to sin. And we live in the Spirit of God. Um, Dr. McGraw notes in the, in the Upper di Room Discourse, John 14, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and 17, that the Spirit of God and of Christ there, he says, in his indwelling presence, he is 
the life of God manifested in the regenerate soul. And that we are none of his if the Spirit is not in us. So the Spirit who was given, remember, what, what is Jesus doing in the Upper Room Discourse? He's, he's comforting his disciples. He's reminding them, I'm leaving, as I've been telling you. But don't worry, as I leave, I'm also giving you the Holy Spirit. It's better that I go, that the Spirit be given to you. Um, so that the, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit makes it now possible for us to believe God. The Bible says that we are compared to branches and a vine. And, and that uh, we are the branches. Christ is the vine. We belong to Christ, and therefore uh, we bear fruit for Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. The indwelling presence of Jesus Christ in your life, the, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, means you're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And the Father sends the Spirit because of Christ. Why does the Father send you the Spirit? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And so he breathes spiritual life into your life. Uh, just as the Spirit brought life to a physical atom, so uh, in the second atom, we are raised with Christ. We are brought to newness of life. We are brought to a resurrection life. And so therefore, McGraw concludes uh, this section here that we respond in gratitude to everything God has done for us by living a holy life. That is our way of demonstrating gratitude for God's grace. Well, we'll stop there, and uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight's lesson. Thank you.